They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 15 The Other Missing Man You'll remember, in the last episode, we established that Matthew James Jackson disappeared from 126 Newton Road on Monday the 9th of February 1970, which is around the date that Fred would have been killed, given the extent of decomposition of his body at the time of his discovery in March 1971. In fact, it's not really around that time, it's exactly that time. Police estimated that Fred had been in the ground between 9 and 18 months. The exact midpoint of those two times is 13 and a half months. If Fred died around 9th of February 1970, the date that Matthew James Jackson disappeared, that itself is exactly 13 and a half months to his discovery. Is that really a coincidence? So I needed to dig deeper into 126 Newton Road and who was living there, given it was a mill cottage. It was only reserved for those who worked at the mill, officially. So there must be some connection, because essentially, if the address given in the disappearance story in the Burton Mail is correct, and we have to assume that it is, there are really only two options. Either Matthew James Jackson or someone Matthew James Jackson knew and was living with was living at that house with the knowledge of the mill. Or he was squatting there without the knowledge of the mill. There's only those two options. I needed to try and get my hands on as many records about the mill and particularly the property that it owned as I could. Now, having spent a lot of time at the Magic Attic, that amazing archive in Swaddlingcote last week, I thought I'd give them a call. Would they know where I could find that kind of information? Well, yes, they said. It's on our top floor. There's a folder up there with loads of Greensmith's stuff in it. We've no idea what's in it, but you're very welcome to come over and have a good look. So, that's where I started. So last Monday evening, I drove down to Swaddlingcote and took that folder off its shelf, made myself comfortable and got to work. It was a thick plastic folder crammed with lots of loose, different sized papers. Took them all out, put them in front of me and went through them one by one. I was hoping for one of two things, some record of the mill property and maybe the people associated with those properties. Maybe any record of the employees at the mill around the end of the 1960s. And there was lots there. There were receipts, old advertisements, there was even an old flower sack, and lots and lots of blueprints of the mill mechanics, how the rollers were arranged, the layout of the screening room, 
pictures of the first floor in the 1930s. But sadly, nothing that links either employees or property to the mill. So that was a dead end. But that's investigation. You expect not to find what you're looking for. And if you do, well, that's a big bonus. I was about to leave the magic attic, make my way home, somewhat disappointed with what I'd been able to find out, when the guy who runs the place stopped me. Are you the guy who's been looking at Greensmith's Mill? He said. Yeah, I haven't really found what I was after, mind. Well, we've got a film of the mill. Would you like to see it? It's from about the end of the 60s. Shows the people who were working there. You might recognise someone. I'll have to dig it out, though, and set it up. Probably take me about 15 minutes, but if you're okay to hang around, I'll do it. Well, I decided to hang around. It was a film of the Harvest Festival, from farm to church, showing the gathering of the grain at one of the local farms, and then its transport to the mill, Greensmith's Mill, for milling. One of the vans that was shown there had an old deregistration plate. That's from 1966, and it wasn't brand spanking new, so it probably was from around the late 60s, this film. There were about four people shown, a few older men, grey hair, though I couldn't actually be sure they had grey hair or whether they were just covered in flour. And one that I imagined might well have been Frank Kuhn, dark hair, thickly set, good-looking man. He was fascinating, but there was no one I did recognise, and certainly no one who was an obvious Fred candidate. So, so far, this visit to the Magic Attic hadn't been quite as productive as the last one. But, why did I mention it took 15 minutes to set up the film before I could watch it? Well, it turns out that that 15 minutes ended up being very useful. With time to kill, I went back to the last tome of the old Burton Mails that I'd been looking through. Remember, I'd found the Matthew James Jackson clipping I was looking for. So I was just filling in time, looking around other editions, just to pick up on anything that was going on at the end of 1969, start of 1970. Who was being sent to jail? What kind of crimes were being committed? Just generally what was happening in the community. Something caught my eye. There was another missing man. Now the last thing I want to do is make a confusing story even more confusing. But you need to be aware of any discovery I make as soon as I know it. Because if we are one day going to unravel this twisted knot of a story, we don't know yet which strand we'll need to pull on to untangle it. So it's important to make sure that we have a grip on as many strands as possible. And men going missing in 1969, well, we can't ignore that. Let me read you that article. It's from the Burton Mail on Friday, July the 11th, 1969. The title, Burton Man Missing. A 35-year-old Burton man has been reported missing from home. Raymond Sheridan Prince was last seen on Wednesday morning when he left his home at 57 Branston Road to go out looking for work. He's 5 feet 10.5 inches tall, slim build, 
with a long, thin face and brown hair. When he was last seen, he was wearing a pair of dark brown glasses, navy blue trousers and a jacket with a brown shirt and pullover. So if he went missing on Wednesday morning, that was the 9th of July, 1969. What exactly happened to Raymond Sheridan Prince? Did he turn up again or was he never seen again? And I can find him. He's there in the birth registry, born 21st of April, 1934, as Raymond S. Prince. Clearly him. So I follow that through, and Raymond S. Prince marries a lady called Muriel I. Davison in April, 1967. He's 33. So Muriel becomes Muriel I. Prince. So he marries in April 1967 and he goes missing on the 9th of July 1969. So I look a bit deeper and a few odd things start to emerge. Muriel Prince marries again in September 1973 to a man called Alfred Davison. Now that's a bit strange because Davison was her maiden name before she married Raymond Prince. Is it just a coincidence she marries another Davison afterwards? The only Muriel I. Davison I can find before her marriage to Raymond Sheridan Prince is a Muriel Irene Davison. Now she's born on the 13th of April 1919. That's 15 years older than Raymond. And by the way, I also noticed she was under the name Muriel Irene Sale. Same birth date, same place they were born. I think that's the same person. Don't know why she's got two different names. So Muriel marries Raymond. She's 48. He's 33. He disappears two years later on the 9th of July 1969. Clearly doesn't come back again. She remarries four years later someone with the same name as her maiden name. Something feels a bit funny about this. And I was right. There was something funny about it. I started looking into Alfred R. Davison, the man who married Muriel in 1973. Now, it seems Alfred had been married before. He got married in July 1968 to a lady called Ivy Millward. Might have been Ivy Parker. There are two separate registers for it, but looks like the same marriage in July 68 at Windshill Methodist Church. But Alfred R. Davison had been married before that. He was married in 1952. And guess who he married in 1952? Muriel Irene Sale, the same person as Muriel Irene Prince. So, listen closely. Alfred Davison marries Muriel Sale in 1952. They divorce at some point. Alfred marries Ivy Millwood in 1968. Muriel marries Raymond Sheridan Prince, who disappears. Then 
Alfred and Muriel remarry in 1974. That's why she had the same maiden name as the name she got married to. She put her maiden name not as Prince, which it was, but as Davison, which it used to be. What's going on here? So I needed to find Ivy Millwood, who became Ivy Davison in 1968. And I tried, but I couldn't, because turns out she died in early 1970, less than two years after she married Alfred Davison. So get this, Muriel marries Raymond S. Prince in 1967, Alfred marries Ivy Millward in 1968. Within two years, both of them are gone. One died, I don't know what she died of. One's gone missing, never to be seen again, leaving Muriel and Alfred to get married again. Thanks for downloading the podcast. And I'm sorry it's taking these unexpected twists and turns, but that's the nature of the journey we're on. We've just got to follow wherever it leads us. Quick shout out to a couple of people. Jim Robinson, Dennis Curley in Minneapolis, great friends of mine who gave me a shout out on their Facebook channel last week, which I really appreciate. And it's always uh, great to hear from you guys. Rob Watson, another good friend of mine, I know he's been binge listening to this on his holidays. So I hope you're enjoying it, Rob. And thanks for your input on that. And as always, you can leave a rating wherever you download your podcast. That's really useful for me. Or just spread the word. It really helps that more and more people are discovering the mystery. That can only be a good thing. So, let's get back to this intriguing story. So, we've got three characters that we need to try to discover a bit more about. There's Raymond Sheridan Prince, a man that was reported as going missing on Wednesday the 9th of July, 1969. Secondly, Muriel Irene Sale, who became Muriel Davison in the 1950s. Then she became Muriel Prince because she married Raymond. But then after Raymond's disappearance, she becomes Muriel Davison again, marrying the same person she was originally married to. And the third person is the person she married, Alfred Davison. He marries Muriel, he must have divorced Muriel. He then marries Ivy Millward, who dies after a couple of years and he marries Muriel again. So it's a bit complicated, but let's see if we can navigate our way through that. So firstly, Raymond Sheridan Prince. What can we find out about him? Well, quite a lot, as it turns out. He was born on the 21st of April 1934 to a lady called Mabel Prince. And the first note I find of him is in 1939 in a register of inmates of a place called Belvedere House in Burton-upon-Trent. He was five years of age. His mother, Mabel, is also there and another boy, John Prince. They were listed as inmates. Now, Belvedere House is what would have been called in Dickensian times a workhouse. But by the 1930s, it was known as the Burton-upon-Trent Public Assistance Institution. Mabel, his mother, 
was described as being involved in unpaid domestic duties and a certified mental patient. About 50% of the people who lived at Belvedere House were described as certified mental patients, though not all. So whilst it was a home for the mentally incapacitated, it perhaps was also a home for people with no obvious means of financial support and their dependents. Of course, in those days, Mabel might simply have been an unmarried mother. And looking through that register, it feels distinctly Dickensian. But remember, 1939 was a lot closer to Victorian times than we are to 1939. So it's perhaps unsurprising. The next record I see of Raymond Sheridan Prince appears in the Burton Observer in 1958 as a petty criminal charged with stealing from a houseboat and then there's another instance of theft soon after that. So from very difficult beginnings of course he seemed to have drifted into a life of petty crime. He's shown as living as a lodger at 21 Fleet Street Burton and then later of no fixed abode so he was homeless the next record of him we see him marrying muriel davison in 1967 at the age of 33. muriel of course is 48 she's 15 years older than him he disappears then in 1969 and there is the article in the burton mail saying he's gone missing and that's the last we ever hear of him interestingly there's no death certificate than I can find anywhere. So what about Muriel Irene Sale? Well, she has a date of birth of the 13th of April, 1919. Now, there's something called the 1939 Register, which is quite an interesting document. This is a census that was conducted in 1939, just after the outbreak of war. It's outside the normal censuses which normally are held in a year ending with one. But at the outbreak of war, in order to produce identity cards and produce rationing data, the 1939 register was taken on the 29th of September. And it records all the civilian population of England and Wales, and it's available online. Muriel Irene Sale was shown as an assembler in a tyre rubber plant, probably the Pirelli factory or a forerunner of it in Burton. And what's interesting, there's a physical annotation on that record. I've seen the physical record, which changes her name to Prince and then to Davison later. The Prince change from the 6th of June 1967, the Davison change from the 24th of September 1973. So we know it's the right person. And we also know, because in other records, that there's a marriage to Alfred Davison back in 1952, in September 1952. Muriel is shown as dying in 2004, aged 85. And Alfred Davison, he was shown as born in, on the 23rd of September 1921, and again, on that 1939 register, he was shown as a labourer. He was living at 80 Nelson Street, which is in Windshill. It shows the marriage in 1968 to Ivy Millwood or Ivy Parker. The two names used on the same document, it's a bit weird, but it's clearly the same person. So he marries her in 68. It shows the Muriel 
the two marriages to Muriel, one in 52 and the other in 1973. His death was recorded in 1978. Now going back for a second to this Ivy Millwood Parker person, I was getting quite into this 1939 register so I thought I'd just have a look to see if she appears anywhere and she does and rather oddly she's shown as living at Belvedere Road and her position is undertaking unpaid domestic duties. That sounds a lot like Belvedere House. It also shows her date of birth which was 1900, a little bit earlier than I was expecting. So there's a couple of weird things there because if it was Belvedere House, in 1967 Muriel marries an ex-inmate of Belvedere House who's 15 years her junior. In 1968 Alfred marries an ex-inmate of Belvedere House 21 years his senior. Something just doesn't feel right about this. Now, I could quite understand if at this point you were saying to yourself, come on, Ken, we've got Zoe Cunn in Australia thinks she might recognise who the person is. We've got Matthew James Jackson to find out all about. Why not see those things through before introducing a new character into the investigation? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. Firstly, I'm really still collecting together every possibility I can find and a missing man of about the right age in 1969, I have to include him in that. Remember also that this is a real-time investigation. One of the benefits of that is I'm discovering things every week and I'm sharing those discoveries with you. They may or may not be relevant. We just can't tell at the moment which one's going to be relevant because one strand will be the key. Is that strand the Kun family? Is that strand Matthew James Jackson? Or is it this missing man? I feel like I'm still trying to gather up all those possibilities before we can delve deeper and deeper into them and ultimately try to eliminate them and one will be left standing. And I should also say, having looked through all those other editions of the Burton Mail, there are not lots of other missing men of the right age at the right time. So for that reason, I definitely want to include him in this stage in the investigation. Something else struck me as well when I was reading through that newspaper cutting about Raymond S. Prince disappearing. He was described as having a long, thin face. Now, I can quite easily visualize what a thin face looks like. It's the opposite of mine. But what does a long face really mean? Did it mean his lower jaw protruded further than it should? It could do. So I needed to find someone, anyone, who might have known Raymond Sheridan Prince. But for a man who went missing in 1969, that was not going to be easy. There seemed to be a son of the first marriage between Muriel and Alfred, and it appeared that he was still living in the Burton area, but actually tracking him down, actually getting a phone number for him so I could ring him up, that was proving really, really difficult. So I went back to the records to see if Mabel had any other family. 
Now, it seems that Mabel had four children with a man called William E. Prince. Raymond, who we know about. John, who was living with her in 1939 in Belvedere House. And two other children, Thomas and a girl called Mabel. Now, very sadly, it seems that both Thomas and Mabel died in infancy at the Belvedere. So that leaves, in 1939, Raymond, Mabel and John. Now, we know what happened to Raymond, or we know what happened to Raymond over the next 20 years. But of John, I could find absolutely no trace. So that seemed to be a bit of a dead end. But I thought then, we do know that Raymond married Muriel Sale in 1967. Maybe if I could find some people of the Sale family who might remember that marriage in 1967 to a man called Raymond Prince, they may know something about his fate. And this, at last, is where I got a break. Facebook has become my friend as an investigator and there were quite a few people called Sale still living in the Burton area. I tried to select some of those who seemed to have names that would suggest they're kind of my vintage and therefore probably had some recollection of that time. And I sent out a few speculative messages to them. The content of those messages though must come as something of a shock to people. Why does this person we don't know want to know all our business? But to be honest, it's never let me down before and happily, it didn't let me down this time either. I got a response from a lady called Val Sale and I didn't record that because it wasn't a telephone call. It was a series of messages through Messenger. So I suppose the best thing for me to do is read those messages to you. So my first message to Val said, Hi Val. My name's Ken Davis. I hope you don't mind me making contact with you, but I'd like to have a quick conversation with you. And it involves a bit of a mystery that I'm working on at the moment. I'm an investigative journalist working on a case that is locally known as Fred the Head. I've been working on this for about two years and produced a podcast on the case, which is becoming quite popular, which I'd be very happy to send you a link to. It's a real long shot, but I'm trying to identify people who may have known a lady called Muriel Sale, who lived in Burton in the 60s, who then became Muriel Davison. Sale is not a particularly common surname, so I thought you may be related. Of course, I'll explain everything to you. And if that name doesn't mean anything to you, well, I'm very sorry for wasting your time. Thanks, Ken. About five minutes later, I got a response. Hello, Ken. Yes, I knew Muriel. She was my mother-in-law. Sadly passed away now. But how can I help you? So I went back. Thanks very much for getting back to me, Val. It is a real mystery I'm working on. Have you ever heard about a case of a man found in Windshill in 1971 that became known as Fred the Head? The police have never identified the victim and I've been trying to identify that person for about two years now and it's become quite a story. There's a lead I am following, amongst many leads, that involves a lady called Muriel Irene Sale, who became Muriel Davison. It involves a man called Raymond Sheridan Prince. 
Raymond Prince went missing in 1969 and I need to track down anyone who went missing around that time or anyone who may have known him. I think Muriel may have known Raymond Prince and therefore I wanted to try to understand whether people remembered him. I should point out by the way that there's no reason to link Muriel to his disappearance. I just want to know as much about him as I can. So if it's convenient it'd be great to have a chat about it. It's quite a complicated story you see and difficult to explain in a few sentences. Thanks again, Ken. Once again, Muriel came back to me. Hi again, Ken. Muriel married Ray Prince in early 1967, but the marriage didn't last long. His brother John married an Italian girl and they moved to America. I don't know if Ray went out there to live with him or not. I don't know what happened to him. There's nothing apart from that I can tell you I'm afraid. I must say though that the mock-up picture of Fred the Head doesn't look like Ray at all. I have a picture of him, it's a bit blurred, but Ray was a very thin person who, and when we knew him, didn't have any kind of neck problem as stated in Fred's story. I would though like the link to the podcast, I'm sure it would be interesting. So I did send the link obviously. And then Val came back to me again. Thanks Ken. If you think I can help in any way I'll try. But that's all I know of Ray. After the divorce I don't know where he went. I then went back and said there are a couple of things that are confusing me though Val. I wonder if you can help me with them. I have Muriel marrying a man called Alfred Davison in 1952. Then marrying Ray Prince. And then marrying Alfred Davison again in 73. Have I got that right? And by the way, there's a piece in the Burton Mail about Ray's disappearance. I'm going to attach that. Was it Muriel reported him missing? And do you know when they divorced? I know I'm asking questions that are none of my business, but it would really help to get to the bottom of this particular strand. So Val then came back to me again. For what I can remember, Ray did return home. There had been problems as they were living with Muriel's mother and she was a bit of a dominating lady. And after a while, they split up because things just weren't going smoothly. And Muriel was having to do everything for her mother. And he left her and that led to a divorce. I can't remember the exact date, but yes, in 1973, Muriel remarried Alf. And Val sent me that picture she had of Ray Prince. In fact, it's the picture of his wedding day to Muriel. And to be honest, I have to agree with Val. That picture she sent me of Ray Prince doesn't look like any photo I've ever seen of Fred the Head. There's certainly a thin face, but no evidence of an underbite or neck issues or anything like that. Even the hair doesn't look right to me. It's far too dark. So whilst we can't rule Raymond Sheridan Prince out on the basis of one photograph, I think on the basis of Val's recollection that he came back I think we have to put him in the unlikely pile I think it's unlikely that Raymond Sheridan Prince had anything to do with this case but we'll keep it there just in case so I found myself thinking what was all that about have I just wasted two weeks well actually in fact it feels a little bit like a mini success and explain why. 
it was an unexpected detour because we'd found evidence that a man had gone missing in 1969. We had to take that detour. We had to see where that detour led us. Having identified a man had gone missing in 1969, right at the time that a potential victim would have gone missing, we have to see it through. It would have been a big failure of us if we didn't check out something so potentially important. And let's be honest, there were some aspects of this story that for a time really raised my hopes that we might be onto something. But investigation sometimes is about eliminating things that probably didn't happen. So if we can close that file on Raymond Sheridan Prince, it is a mini victory. Because every time you rule someone out, you take another step closer to people who can't be ruled out. So where next for this investigation? Well, we've still got Zoe Kun looking through those photographs that her father had taken at the time, album upon album of them. That may yet reveal something very interesting. And I still need to know a lot more about 126 Newton Road, particularly what happened after the Kun family left and Matthew James Jackson. And that's where I'll be concentrating my efforts between now and the next podcast. So until then, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.